Welcome to Hope Through Hard Stuff, a podcast from Winning at Home. Please welcome your host, speaker, and award-winning author, Steve Norman. Well, welcome back to Hope Through Hard Stuff. I'm super excited to have as our conversation partner today, Shane Claiborne. Shane is an activist and an author. Uh, I just finished reading yesterday uh, his newest book, Rethinking Life, Embracing the Sacredness of Every Person. Shane, thanks so much for making time to join us today. Heck yeah, man. Thanks for having me. It's good to talk. So Shane, you had a stint in your kind of ministry journey where you were in suburban Chicago. Is that correct? Uh, That is absolutely true. I spent uh, a good solid year at Willow Creek Community Church uh, working out there. Went to Wheaton, got all kinds of uh, friends uh, in that area. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that's like my old stomping grounds grew up just a little bit south of there. And you probably don't remember this, but when I was a church planter in suburban Detroit, we had to come speak at our church in a, in an old music theater. It was Genesis Church in downtown Royal Oak way back in the day. Totally remember it, man. Woo, yeah. Yeah. Back, that might have been back in the 1900s. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, just, it might have just barely been in this century, but it, feel, it feels like a long time ago. Well, I, again, I was just really compelled by your story then and continue to be compelled by it now. Shane, you've written a couple different books. Tell me about why Rethinking Life and why now. Ooh, well, the last two books that I've written have been fairly specific. One was Executing Grace, and it's on grace and redemption, but also about the death penalty. And I spent a lot of my life supporting the death penalty, you know, using the Bible as what I saw as justification for it, and then really began to wrestle with that, especially as I knew more and more folks on death row, Mm -hmm. some of whom are innocent. And also as I got to know murder victims' family members who really felt like the death penalty just mirrors the problem rather than healing the wounds of violence. And then I wrote Beating Guns, Addressing Gun Violence. Uh, and again, even with that, I grew up with guns. I grew up, uh, you know, hunting with my grandfather. <laughs> and, um, and yet, um, when I moved to Philly 25 years ago, we began to see all the lives being lost to guns. And I mean, it, it just, I mean, and that's very personal. This morning, we there was a, a body that was found on the corner and so I literally have been out there all morning. And mm. so um, this is, this is real, you know? And so to me, this new book, Rethinking Life is not about one issue, but it's about um, zooming out a little bit and having a fresh appreciation for how precious life is and and thinking more deeply about what it means to be pro-life. Because I also grew up calling myself pro-life, even though I was for the death penalty uh, and, you know, a gun owner and, you know, not at all concerned about gun violence. So I want to be consistent, you know, and I want to be comprehensive in my advocacy for life, uh, not just on one issue, but on all of them. And, and so that's what this book's about. And it's, it's, you know, it's not even really about issues. It's about starting at the beginning when God created life and, and said, this is good. And then sort of looking through scripture and looking at the world we live in now and um, where, where life can be so easily desecrated. Yeah, I, Shane, I really appreciate just your your commitment to creating both a historical and theological f- framework through which we can view some of the modern and contemporary issues. Where where in your journey did you start to experience some of that cognitive dissonance? Where where did it start to get a little bit wobbly when you realized that some of your issues weren't lining up conceptually in how you now interpret the gospel to read? For sure, like there's that old saying, "Where we sit determines what we see." 
Mm. And, and I think for me, the more proximate I got to pain, to injustice, to inequity, the more I began to see how we valued some lives more than others. Uh, and, you know, when you look at history and that our, our country is sort of at a crossroads right now where we're talking about history and how do we tell the truth about it. And, and some of that history is really, really wrenching. So for, you know, for me, I got to know folks on death row, some of whom were guilty of the crimes that they are convicted of. But I know that I've seen what their relationship to Jesus has done over the years. And, you know, it raises the question for me, is anybody beyond redemption? You know, aren't mm-hmm. we all more than the worst thing that we've ever done? As my friend Brian Stevenson says, you know, uh, when Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. When Jesus says, you know, that uh, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. I think it, it really, um, uh, Jesus is such a consistent, a champion of life. I mean, a prince of peace. Even when Peter picks up a sword and tries to protect him, you know, Jesus disarms Peter and kind of challenges the violence. Uh, so that's what I'm after, man. I, the deeper I fell in love with Jesus and the more I leaned into those who have been directly impacted by violence, um, the, the more I really wanted to be um, a true advocate for life. And Mother Teresa was a big part of that. I write about that in the book early on when I was in undergrad, right before I went to Chicago, actually, uh, I spent a summer in India working with Mother Teresa and I worked in the home for the dying, which uh, sounds like a really heavy place, but it was a very sacred place where we gathered people off the streets who were dying and we held their hands and laughed with them and sang with them and often were the last eyes that they were looking into as they passed away. Uh, and, and it was such holy work. And, and, you know, I came to really honor, to admire Mother Teresa's advocacy for life, because she's often known for her stance on abortion, which she was very passionately against abortion. But she was also calling governors the night before execution. She was taking nuns in the middle of wars and rescuing orphans and children uh, so she was just a beautiful embodiment of the kind of pro-life that I want to be. Yeah, Shane, it seems like one of the things that the book does is it says, like, we can't we can't be selectively pro-life. We can't say, like, hey, and these issues are going to champion life, and then these issues we're going to take a sideline. And your journeys have brought you into some pretty crazy places. What What is it about your curiosity or sense of adventure that just leads you to call up the phone or buy plane tickets to meet people or go places that most of us would never think of jumping into? Well, I mean, honest to goodness, I think a lot of what happened for me is the deeper I fell in love with Jesus, I see that this whole story is about God leaving the comfort of heaven mm. <laughs> you know, and joining the struggle on earth. I mean, being born yeah, yeah. in brown skin as a Palestinian Jewish refugee messiah, you know, uh, yeah. executed on the cross. So, and I think community has been really important for me, you know. Jesus gives me courage, um, but community also gives us courage. And I, you know, from for the last 20 years, I've, I've lived in some form of community. Um, and, you know, I went to Iraq uh, during the, the bombing and the war. This is actually the anniversary uh, this month of the, the mm. shock and all bombing of Iraq, where we were the U.S. Um, and coalition troops were dropping 900 bombs a day on Iraq. And we were there. We lived in Baghdad, you know, trying to be peacemakers, as Jesus said, uh, and, and trying to, to 
document what was happening, accompany families through that, volunteer in hospitals. So um, I think courage is contagious, you know, just like fear is. And uh, a lot of the courage that I've gotten is by hanging out with courageous people, you know, that want uh, that that believe in the cross as much as as other people believe in um, the sword or the bomb or the gun. And and, you know, community life in Philly is how we carried the burdens, as, as that scripture says, we're, we're to bear one another's burdens. So when we wake up like this morning, right, to a life lost on our corner, um, we are all carrying that together. Our, all of our neighborhoods out. We're talking to the crossing guards, rerouting kids so that they're walking to school on the other side of the street. You know, so, I mean, I think my neighborhood has been a huge part of emboldening me and you know this kind of resilient hope and uh courage in spite of the things that we see shane it seems like sometimes people like very well-intentioned people uh tend to value self-protection more than they value love like and again like not not to pick on gun ownership but like i had a friend in my last church who who is a pastor and his other pastor friend was ribbing him is like i hey i'm not sure why why you need a need a weapon you live in a super safe upper middle class neighborhood uh and you live in a neighborhood that's that's rife with gun violence and yet don't don't seem to have the need to defend yourself with force against threats of violence out How, how'd you get there how's that work well i think we've got to start by saying i understand that that logic, you know, I mean, like I said, I, I grew up with guns. My dad was in the military. Most of my family are still gun owners. Um, and yet I think it was, it was really my relationship with Jesus that, um, taught me about faith, you know, that, Mm. that we're, you know, there's that old scripture that says some may trust in chariots, some may trust in horses, you know, but I trust in, in our God. And, um, and some of this is, uh, I want to say that, um, you know, I think the cross and the gun give us two really different versions of power. Hmm. And one of one of them says, I'm willing to die. And the other says, I'm willing to kill. And for me, there kind of came a moment where the idea of standing your ground really flies in conflict with the idea of loving our enemy or uh, turning the other cheek. And I certainly don't think that we... Um, just to, you know, let people trample all over us or something. But I do think that Jesus teaches us a different way to interact with evil mm. without mirroring it or without yeah. reciprocating it, right? As as the scripture says, re, don't repay evil with evil, overcome evil with good. So what does that look like? And I, I think, you know, it's really clear that the early Christians were so clear about this. You know, I wrote wrote extensively about them in Rethinking Life is, is that they they said, for Christ, we can die but we cannot kill. Uh, There there really comes a moment where um, uh, we've got to ask ourselves, what does love look like? The theme I keep coming back to in Rethinking Life is what does love require of us? And uh, I think that love, greater love is no one than this, than being willing to lay down our life. But the moment we begin to say that we're going to use violence to try to counteract violence, I think we become a part of the problem or we steer away a little bit from uh, the love that we see in Jesus. And that's why I think Peter's a great example, you know, because he did that. When, when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, he picked up a sword, he stood his ground, you know, cut off a guy's ear. And Jesus unmistakably, like, rebukes him. Yeah. Says, put that away. And he heals the guy that Peter wounded. And the early Christians, uh, they understood that. They said, uh, when Jesus disarmed Peter, he disarmed every one of us. If ever there was a case to be made, 
for using violence to try to protect the innocent. Uh, Peter had the best case in the book. But I think it does raise the question, though, is what does courageous love look like? You know, are we as willing to die for love as we, you know, as people have been willing to die for war? I'm not scared of dying. I'm not really looking. To, I'm not trying to hurry it up. But, uh, you know, but if I die, when I die, I want to die with love on my lips. You know, I want to die yeah. in a way that honors Jesus. No, that's so good, uh, Shane. And that's been an inspiration to me from a distance. It was, I did my, I did my school research on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and was trying to think a lot about, all right, if, if the gospel in one dimension is helping people, you know, go to heaven when they die, then the gospel in two dimensions is helping people's felt needs. But the gospel in three dimensions is addressing systemic needs. And Jesus like fully embodies this gospel in three dimensions. And I had an opportunity once to go with a friend to speak to a, you know, a Muslim audience in the country in the Middle East. And my wife was like, is it dangerous? And I was like, I, I don't know. I guess I'll figure out when I get there. But the the irony of that whole thing, and you talk about this a little bit in the book when you talk about the importance of proximity, is after I'd spent you know forty eight hours with these Palestinian Muslim educators, I, I thanked them through a translator for you know allowing me to be their guest, and they started yelling in Arabic, and I was like, oh no, here you know here it is. I I, I crossed some imaginary line, and I asked the translator what's going on. He's like, they're offended that you call yourself their guest because they call you their brother. And it was both deeply humbling and embarrassing for me because, you wow. know, a, a, a month before I'm like, oh, these are people who who may or may not have the desire and the power to take my life. And and then being there on their turf and being a a, a recipient of their hospitality, I was just stunned at how wrong I had it all along. Does, does that make any sense? Oh, absolutely. And I've been to Israel and Palestine uh, several times. I've got great friends that are on both sides of the wall sure. over there working for peace and you know, I think being in Iraq and Afghanistan um, opened my eyes to so many things. And, uh, you know, I tell a little bit in, in the new book, the story of when we were in Iraq. And I, I said to one of the bishops, you know, this is after a, a service with hundreds and hundreds of Christians. And I said, I had no idea that there were so many Christians in Iraq. And he goes, yeah, this is where it started. <laughs> and he, he said, that's the uh, Euphrates River. You know, uh, have you heard right. of that one? And so, you know, I think we've got to see that that this is big story. And my other experiences that I'll never forget is, you know, when you talk about safety, it's interesting because Jesus does not call us to be safe. You know, um, I think that we can, my mom has a great prayer. She said, I used to pray that you would be safe, but now that I pray that you would be wise and that you would be careful. And she says, I don't think that we're meant to be safe. And my mom's been to Israel and Palestine with me. She's been to Hebron. You know, we went to the West Bank. So she's seen a lot of this conflict. And I think that's a beautiful statement, you know, because there's a lot of other people you can follow if you want to be safe. But uh, but Jesus is not one of those. (laughs) Father Dan Berrigan said, uh, if you want to follow Jesus, you better look good on wood because it's a call that could could cost you your life. Wow. You know, I don't say that that lightly because I think that. Sometimes we cheapen the cost of discipleship in the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. When we were in Afghanistan, I was visiting a group there in Kabul and um, Marie McGuire, she won the Nobel Peace Prize for her work in Northern Ireland as she worked for peace. And um, and she was talking to these women in Taliban, Steve. And, um, and one of them asked her, as she's telling her story, they said, weren't you scared? And th- these are women that have, you know survived the Taliban. They said, weren't you scared? And she said, of course we were scared. Mm. Of course you're scared sometimes. She said, there's nothing wrong with being scared, but fear is different from being scared. It's when we let being scared stop us from what from doing what love 
requires of us. And I think it's that first time, you know, there where I was thinking like that, what a powerful idea. You know, there's nothing wrong with being scared. I'm sure Jesus was scared. I mean, he's certainly lonely when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet he obviously was God, but he, he he's experiencing this loneliness. If Jesus can feel that, we can feel that at times, you know, but still that courage and that love causes us to continue to live in spite of being scared, you know, to continue to do what love asks of us. Shane, in the book, you talk about the difference between being pro-life and pro-birth or anti-abortion. Un- unpack that a little bit for people who might hear that as, as new or confusing verbiage. Like I said, I grew up in the Bible Belt in East Tennessee, also called myself pro-life, but I began to realize how narrowly we had defined what it meant to be pro-life, you know, to one issue. Mm. And I mean, isn't it a strange thing? And I was one of these folks that in America, you can say you can be pro-guns, pro-war, pro-death penalty, and still say you're pro-life as long as you're against abortion. And and honestly, I think we would be more accurate, some of us, me included for a, a good chunk of my life, to say that we are pro-birth or anti-abortion rather than pro-life, because a lot of the other issues of life, we haven't been champions, and sometimes we've been the problem. When I think about abortion, I still care deeply about it. Uh, and I, you know, I write about that. Abortion does matter. I think that we can reduce the number of uh, abortions dramatically. And if we want to do that, one of the things that we need to think about is what has been effective in doing that? And the the number one uh, reason listed for having an abortion is financial stability. The person doesn't have the resources to have a child or another child often. And so things like affordable childcare, healthcare, living wage, some of those things that would make having a child a little bit more achievable Some folks that are pro-life have opposed some of those policies. So, you know, the question I'm asking, too, is like, how did this one issue come to eclipse so many other issues? And I think that's a really important one. Abortion is a really complicated issue. I I don't think that we're all going to agree on where life begins. Uh, Is it conception? Is it heartbeat? Is it viability outside the womb? Is it first breath? You know? And scripture doesn't speak directly to it. Uh, Jesus doesn't talk about it. So it is one of the things that it's a, a little bit complicated. And for the early church, they did talk about abortion. Um, I cite the multiple early Christian thinkers as they talked about abortion. But when they talked about abortion, it included things like leaving a child and actually a birth child in the wilderness or in the forest or the desert, uh, what they called exposure. And so, you know, these things, we, we've got to have some hard conversations. And I think the political polarities of, you know, conservatives and liberals have not helped us. And often the culture war that's happening around partisan politics has kind of hijacked a better conversation that we can have on abortion. And we've had two town halls that I hosted with Red Letter Christians on abortion and uh, they were really, really powerful. So I, I know that we can have a better conversation on abortion um, and, and not just kind of let the culture wars and bumper stickers and T-shirts, you know, hijack it for us. Yeah. And, and I love like the implication of your book that says like, hey, politics might require you to vote, but love always requires more. Like and I think that I 
I have to confess that for good chunks of my adult life, I had been kind of lulled in or kind of conned into thinking that my responsibility on life issues both began and ended at the ballot box. And that's, that's, it's patently untrue. The gospel requires so much more like a, a fully embodied kind of guttural three-dimensional response to life issues that, that you talk about in this work. And I'm so grateful for. Yeah, man. I mean, I come out of that great tradition of, uh, the Christian anarchists, uh, the Dorothy Day and Tolstoy and, uh, and the Anabaptists, you know, that had this peculiar relationship with power. And I think that Christians should have a suspicion of power. Uh, I mean, our suspicion of power goes a long way back, you know, like from Exodus, from the Egyptian empire to the execution of Jesus. I mean, we, we've had this collision with power forever. I think of voting, Steve, as kind of damage control, mm. <laughs> harm Good. reduction, you know, that yeah. we're not looking for a Messiah, but we are looking to try to minimize the harm that's being done. And things like immigration, this is not a partisan thing. This shouldn't be a Republican thing or a Democrat thing. Like Jesus said, when you welcome the stranger, you welcome me. So let's find a better way creating a path to citizenship and refuge for asylum seekers and refugees. I mean, um, a Christian should be in the forefront of many of these issues that we've, we've often kind of been dragging our feet on. And these are issues of life. You know, you can't be pro-life and, and ignore the plight of our, our brothers and sisters. So I think like loving our neighbor means that we can't ignore policies. But I do think we've got to be careful as we engage politically that uh, as the old hymn goes, my hope is built on nothing less, right, than Jesus' blood and righteousness. All other ground is sinking sand. So, you know, if we put our ultimate hope in a political candidate or a party, we're always setting itself up for disappointment. So I think we can think, you know, what does it mean to vote for the poor, the least of these? What does it mean to stand in solidarity with immigrants? But like you said, we cannot confine our vote or our voice. Uh, they share the same root word, right? We can't confine that to a ballot box. I mean, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. And so we are looking to transform the world, not just on election day, but every day. So I, I think we should be voting for the kingdom of God every day. I mean, it's why we wrote a book called Jesus for President, right? But we're, you know, like, what does it look like for us to seek to transform the world and not just to wait on the politicians to change the world? Yeah. Shane, what do you say to people who uh, are have never really wrestled with that question? Not not because they're bad people, they just, they just never thought to that question. What does love require of me? Um, we live here in West Michigan, where there's a lot of lot of things that are that that feel nice and clean and organized and tourist friendly, and sometimes it doesn't feel like there's close proximity to some of the deeper justice issues of the day. And yet, th th they're they're there for the seeing, if only we have eyes to see. What what does it look like for people in Holland, Michigan, to to ask and wrestle with that question? What does love require of us? Well, Mother Teresa had a great line, Steve. She said, uh, "Calcuttas are everywhere. If mm -hmm. we we'll only have eyes to see." So you don't have to go to, you know, Calcutta, India to find folks that are struggling. In fact, I think sometimes it's easier to support work happening overseas than it is to deal with the issues right across town. So one of the things I would say is that just like Jesus, let's try to lean in to the pain of this world and to begin with relationships, you know, this proximity to people that God calls us to. And, and I think that so many of the patterns of our world are built around moving away from the pain, moving mm -hmm. away from neighborhoods where there's high crime or there's people that don't look like us. 
uh, Derek Webb, he wrote a great song. <laughs> Basically, one of the lines is, is essentially, uh, God's been good. I've finally been able to move out of Jesus's neighborhood. <laughs> mm, wow. Wow. You no, know, we got to remember Jesus came from Nazareth, a town where people said nothing good could come. There's ways to do that, though. You know, and I, it's an old saying that the hardest part about running a marathon is not getting to the finish line. It's getting to the starting line. Yeah. And, and, and so I think we've got to take some steps towards that. I started visiting folks in prison that folks that wrote me letters and I eventually began visiting them. And before long, you know, I was visiting folks on death row. My mom went, has been with me. My wife's been with me. And one of the things you begin to see is like, we're all kind of most comfortable around people like us, you know, mm -hmm. people who eat like us, talk like us, vote like us. That's who we're most comfortable around. And yet, the relationships that stretch me and shape me are often outside of that. I think that's why Jesus is all often saying everybody in the world loves the people who are like them. You're to the love bigger than that, right? Even challenges the kind of who is my own family to invite us to extend love beyond, you know, biology and beyond our own family. That's kind of the invitation, you know, in, in this book too, is to come alongside some groups that may be working with refugees. I mean, there's now all kinds of ways that people can bring in foster kids or can invite a, a refugee family to live in their home. There's ways that folks can visit folks in prison. We're holding vigils around every execution that happens in the United States. And we are often writing and visiting folks and their families and the victims of, of the crimes, uh, of violent crimes too. So I think we got to say compassion is not a limited resource. You know, you can feel compassion for folks that have been impacted by violence on all levels. And that includes, you know, folks that have been victims of violent crimes and people who are incarcerated or on death row. I really believe we got to begin with that proximity and with relationships. And sometimes that's one of the hardest things, right? Because we're all kind of in these insular bubbles around people who look like us, but let's crack them open. And I think we'll all be better off if we do. Shane, one of the things I love about you is just your your tone and your words and your expression are always always seem to be marked by joy. And at the same time, you're you're living your life uh, in the in the trenches. Even even today is is a hard day, experiencing heartache and tragedy from a front row seat. How how do you explain that to people who are afraid that if they if they tow into the waters of suffering, it will just result in a in a really dark and disconnected and, and scary and overwhelming existence. Well, I'm a, I, I got to say, the more I'm with people who you would think have no reason to hope, I find the most resilient hope I've ever seen. And mm -hmm. when I'm around folks that you would think they've got everything in the world, you, you know, that there's often a loneliness and a longing for something else. And so Jesus, of course, keeps my hope alive, but so does uh, hanging out with people who struggle. You know, um, we had a big fire here a few years ago, Stephen. It burnt down like uh, our whole block. It burnt down the house I was living in, our community center. And thankfully, like our whole neighborhood pulled together and there were a hundred families displaced, right? So the Red Cross had set up an emergency shelter, but then the workers came and they said, listen to this, no one stayed in the shelter because everybody in your neighborhood opened their homes up to each wow. other. It was just incredible, you know? And then uh, there was one reporter talking to my neighbor across the street here, you know, very sensational. You know, your house just burnt down. What are you, what are you feeling? And my neighbor goes, you know what? We're going to make it through this. Yeah. Thank God nobody was hurt. 
I mean, cars were blowing up because people didn't have time to move their cars. And he said, nobody was hurt. And then he said, and I just noticed since the factory burnt down, that's where this fire started, this four-story factory. He said, since the factory burnt down, I can see the moon. <laughs> and he goes, we can see the moon from our block for the first time. I thought, man, that's different, right? So I, I keep that song in my soul, Steve, uh, this joy that I have. Yeah, that the world didn't give it to me and the world can't take it away. And then we often put hope in there, right? This hope that I have, the world didn't give it to me and the world can't take it away. So I think we got to keep that hope alive. Um, yeah, one of my mentors said, if you can't laugh, then the devil's already won because mm-hmm. joy is a fruit of the spirit. So we've got to keep our joy and our, our hope alive. And, and we know how the story ends. You know, the story ends that the tomb is empty that death has lost its sting, that this entire groaning creation is going to be renewed and brought back to life with that vision and revelation, the new Jerusalem is coming on earth. So I think that's that's where we know history's headed. We know God's bigger than the things that seem to be destroying people's lives right now. So we can live in light of that. So good. Shane, thank you so much uh, for giving of your time and your energy, your joy and your story today. Again, the book is called Rethinking Life, Embracing the Sacredness of Every Person. It is worth reading. Uh, Carlisle Barney once said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you flinch before it sets you free. This book did that to me. It might just do it to you. Uh, but if you are if you're up for a flinching and growth, that's on the other side of it. It's, it's worth the read. So Shane, thanks again for your time today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, brother. We'll do it again sometime. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Hope Through the Hard Stuff. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe to it, rate and review it, and then share it with others. Winning at Home offers hope through counseling and coaching, motivational speaking, community events, and other media resources. If you believe in what we do and want to support us in our mission, consider making a donation at winningathome.com.